Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. If you turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 2, as this prophet from this crazy place called Tekoa, a little farming community, a ranching community, a place in the sticks, this prophet that you look at him and he's not going to be the guy that you would pick to prophesy over the northern kingdom, he actually lives in the southern kingdom of Judah, but he's prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he now is going to continue kind of this tirade against these nations that surround Israel. And while we do this, it's important for us to remember that God always holds us accountable for the knowledge and understanding that we have, and he always turns his grace to those who turn to him. Uh, His ear and his eye is always on his children. And while these prophetic words are spoken in a very general sense about regions and countries that still exist today, they by no means are intended by God or by me as I read these words to say to you that every Jordanian is anti-Israel or every person who lives in Lebanon is against the Jewish people or is not even a believer. There are actually wonderful Christians in Syria. There is actually a fairly large Jewish population uh, in Syria as well. There are Christians in Lebanon. There are Christians in Jordan. And so as we look at these nations, and while there are specific things said about these areas of the world, we should always remember that the grace of God is received and believed by individuals one at a time. And wherever a person believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that person is saved. And just because someone lives in a country that might be adamantly anti-Israel does not mean that every person who lives in that country is anti-Israel, nor does it mean that every person who's in that country necessarily for Israel either. It simply is a generality as the Lord speaks about the history and the heritage of these very specific regions about whom Amos is prophesying. And so we turn our attention tonight to chapter two. And remember, as I've said, we're going to cover a chapter a week. Uh, We're going to be here in this book for just two months. And so get prepared because we're going to the book of James next. So Exciting time for that, as it looks uh, to be in our future about six weeks from now. So Amos chapter 2, Moab, Judah, and Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the instruction that it has for us. And Lord, not just for these ancient peoples or the remnants of them in our modern world, but for us as well, these truths about Morality, these truths about your holiness, these truths about the way you expect your people to live and breathe and act, Lord, are true today as they were then. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through your word, help us to receive it and understand it, and then to live it out in this world that desperately needs to know who you are and what you are doing in this world for us even today. And so bless us as we study in Jesus' name, amen. Again, that phrase, remind yourselves, uh, be very accurate when you make a statement and you proceed it with, thus says the Lord, amen? So if you say it, it better be straight from God's mouth and for people to hear from the Lord, or you probably ought to pick another statement to be your opening one, amen? Like if I were to say, thus says the Lord, the Dodgers are going to win the World Series again, um, that might get me stoned later this year. I hope it doesn't. But the fact of the matter is, if you say, thus says the Lord, it must be 100% accurate 100% of the time. 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. And so this is a picture of a battle, and we'll get to it in a moment, that actually is recorded in Scripture for us. But it mentions now this region called Moab, which is part of Edom, which again is the remnant uh, of of the people of modern-day Jordan. And so this is speaking of the south and the east of what would be the kingdom of Judah or the southern kingdom. I will send fire upon Moab, and this is not Utah, by the way. It shall devour the palaces of Kiroth, and Moab shall die in tumult with shouting and trumpet and sound, and thou will cut off and judge in its midst and slay its princes with him, says the Lord." Now again, remember that these things were spoken to an ancient people at an ancient time. These things actually happened then, but they have a prophetic window that still looks toward, towards the future. And so here comes Moab, this region of the world uh, that is associated uh, with the word that is translated from Hebrew to mean red. Edom, the Edomites, Esau. So this is the heritage of Esau. These are the people that uh, inhabit the Jordan River Valley, but on the eastern side of the valley, so in modern-day Jordan. And Moab's sin was actually very, very, very evident to the Lord and very evident to its prophet, uh, who is Amos in this particular case. And so what were they doing that was such a difficulty for the Lord that he would pronounce a judgment upon them? Well, one of the things that they were doing at that time was attacking across the Jordan River and into Judah, and ultimately uh, also destroying those that were responsible for guarding the Jewish people, because the Jewish people at this time had an alliance uh, with some of the Moabites. Now, if you remember your biblical history, when the Jewish people entered into the land, when the Israelites came into the land that we call the land of conquest, the land that uh, was inhabited first by Canaanites, which were all kinds of the historical inhabitants of the land, uh, the Jewish people, the Israelites, were told to make sure that they did not leave in the land, the land that was given to them by God, uh, any of the remnants of these pagan peoples. Now, some of you may be saying, well, that's kind of harsh. That's kind of tough. That's a little bit, you know, a little bit too extreme for me. God did it for a reason. God calls us out as believers of this world. He calls us to be separate, says the Lord. Come out from among them. That was the cry of the prophet Ezekiel, actually. Come out from among them. Do not be like them. Because there was going to be a problem if they continued to live in the land with these people that did not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that did not care for the holiness of God, that in fact wanted to live their lives in a completely godless way. And God knew it. And so God told them, look, I want you to be different. I want you to be separate. Don't make an allegiance with these people. And so the Jewish people were pretty good at it. They did mostly what God asked them to do, except for the Moabites. They left a remnant of the Moabites in the land. They eventually ended up having to kind of capitulate to some of the things that the Moabites would do. And in fact, there are a couple of stories. The book of Ruth, the book of Esther, kind of records some of these intermarriages that end up getting the Jewish people in trouble. And so here's a message. The fourth transgression, the one against Moab, directed at Edom, which is, if you look at a map of that region of the world today, and I've done so and taken it back in time to where you'd be looking at the region as it was then. The right side of the map, as you're looking at it, is modern-day Jordan on the bottom of the map and modern-day Syria on the top of the map. As you look up into what's Phoenicia on this particular map, that is modern-day Lebanon. And, And where you're looking right now is basically the center of national Israel. There's just a little bit below uh, the bottom of this map, which would be down towards the port city of Elat, which is where you have Israel joined together with Jordan and not very far away, also Saudi Arabia, and not very far away from there, also Egypt. 
And so this particular map shows you these two kingdoms. You have the kingdom of Judah. So this is the, this is the area of the kings. This is the land of David. This is, contains Bethlehem and Jerusalem themselves. And then the northern kingdom, ten tribes dwell up there. So you have ten tribes in the north, and you have two tribes in the south. They each have their own capital. And the reason this is important is in the north... They learned to live with all of these pagan nations. So as the Assyrians come, they kind of adopt a little bit of the Assyrians. And so all of you have heard and read the story of the Good Samaritans. That's from the capital of Samaria. And the reason Samaria is named Samaria is for the people that live there. They were the remnants of the Assyrian conquest. And so as the Assyrians came, killed off all the men, intermarried with the Jewish women, the people that were born from that intermarrying of Assyrians with the Jewish people, the Israelites, were the Samaritans. And so they were considered kind of unholy and co-conspirators with Assyria. And so they were not allowed to worship in Jerusalem. So they ended up, because they still were Jewish, they ended up making their own temple. Their temple is in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. And there is a second temple, the real temple, which is in Jerusalem. So they have this competition. Very important part of this history because it shows you what happens in these areas where we're tempted to not completely follow what the Lord says to us. There's just a little tiny bit of compromise that's interjected here. And I don't know if any of you can identify with an area of your life where you've maybe just had a little tiny bit of compromise that over time ended up being something that was a whole lot bigger than that little tiny bit of compromise. That was where the Jewish people found themselves. That's where the Israelites found themselves. A little tiny bit of compromise turned into the worship of pagan gods. Notice there in verse 1, it says that this spirit that includes revenge, as he burned the, the bones of the king of Edom into lime, now that incident is actually recorded in 2 Kings chapter 3. It says this in verse 24, And so when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites. Now this is only because they didn't drive them out in the first place. The only reason that there's a remnant is because they tried to live with, uh, you know, there's all kinds of stories. It's like the Moabite women were beautiful and the, the Israelite men said, well, you know, I'm, we're not going to kill them. They're pretty. I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong with being beautiful ladies. So just know that. But Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them. and They entered into the land, killing the Moabites. They destroyed the cities, and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. In other words, they, they laid siege and took over the land. They stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees. They left every stone of Ker, Harses, intact. However, the slingers surrounded and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took 700 men, drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. And so later in that story, that king is captured and burned. This is, a, this is a picture of kind of learning to live with, if you will, the enemy. And at this time, what ends up happening is not only do you have two temples and two high priests, you also have two kings. And so in Israel, in the north, you have King Jehoram, and in Judah, you have Jehoshaphat. Uh, the king of Edom and his forces joins with Moab. And so you have all these weird political things going on. And, and in a lot of ways, it kind of sounds like our world that we live in today. There's all these allegiances and alliances, and nobody seems to know who's aligned with who. And it gives you kind of a picture of why we as the church need to be different than the world. We're not of them. We're still with them. We're still here. But there's supposed to be a distinction. There was no distinction. Everybody was making political allegiances and alliances and they would say what they needed to say to get accomplished what they wanted accomplished. And ultimately, 
you have everyone not following after the Lord God. They're all compromised in some way, shape, or form. What happens when that happens? Well, what happens is you have two kingdoms and yet one people. Kind of sounds a little bit like our political environment. You have two kingdoms, but one people. You have two groups of people who are divided by two kings, two allegiances, two alliances, two loyalties. You have people who are listening to one group of people because they have these things they like, and another group of people who have these things that they like. And ultimately, they're actually brothers and sisters. They're related to each other. And in a very similar way, we can look at our world. When, when you start to build up hatred, when you start to build up anger, when you come against people with whom you actually co-inhabit the same region, when you end up making enemies out of your neighbors, it never goes well. Never. Were there differences that mattered? Yes, of course. But a lot of those differences would have been covered had they done things God's way. So instead of doing things God's way, they decide, well, we have our own king, we're going to do this, and we have our own king, and we're going to be this way. It ultimately ends up costing this region about 3,000 years of conflict because it still goes on today. This particular land is a land that is the most hotly contested, politically volatile, and actually closest to a region that could erupt into a full, all-out war at any moment of any day that exists anywhere in the world. Now, some of you are going, well, I don't think I'm going to go to Israel. In a greater sense, it's also one of the safest places in the world because it's so militarized. It's like everybody's like, well, you know, we're not really going to actually fight each other. But there's just tension, and that tension is so thick that you can cut it at times with a knife. Probably many of you have heard Arab nations spout things like, we're going to push Israel into the sea. Or we're going to wipe Israel from the face of the map. That's not an idle threat. That is the remnant of this hatred that still exists in the region. Because the Jewish people failed to take a stand for God, they in essence have had to make peace with people that do not want them to exist. Still continues to this day. One of the things that strikes us when we travel to Israel, and especially when we make a transition into Jordan, if we, when we're on our tour and we go to Petra, which is in Jordan, we go to the very southernmost point in Israel, to Elat, which is a port city, it's on the Red Sea. Uh, as, as we stay overnight there, the next morning we travel to the Jordanian border, which is two miles from the hotel, we actually have to change buses. Why? Because our tour bus has Israeli plates on it. Because we have an Israeli guide. Because there are Jewish people on the bus. Those Jewish people and that Israeli guide, or guides, plural, have to get on their bus, go back to the hotel. We have to transfer to a Jordanian bus with a Jordanian guide with a Jordanian police officer on it to enter into Jordan from Israel. This same battle is still going on. The same dislike is still going on. And so as we look at this pronouncement you look at these two kingdoms, these two people, they're actually very close cousins. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're actually related. 
they're Semitic people. But there's still tension. Verse 4, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah. And so God now turns his attention towards his own people through the prophet. Amos begins to say, look, Judah's not clean in this. Judah's not clear of the judgment of the Lord. For four, I will not turn away its punishment. God is completely just, including spanking his own kids. Anybody figure that out in life? That God chastens those whom he loves, and if he doesn't chasten you, he doesn't love you? He spanks his own kids, too, even his chosen ones. Why? He says, I will not turn away its punishment. Look at it. You might want to underline it because it's still true. Because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. God's people are supposed to be people of the word. And that doesn't mean just knowing it. It doesn't mean understanding where you can find it if you need to beat somebody up. It means that you not only know what the word says, but you are also a James 1.22 doer of the word. Amen? For their lies led them astray. Lies which their fathers followed. I will send fire upon Judah and devour its palaces of Jerusalem. Now you can imagine when the people of the northern kingdom, Israel, hear these words come out of the prophet Amos, they're probably going, yeah, get them. Yeah. Go God. You know, you can almost see it. It's like, about time. We knew they were rotten all along. Be careful, church, about rejoicing in the pain of other people. When other people fail to keep the word and they suffer the consequences of it, you should grieve over that. You should not rejoice over it. We should care what other people are going through at all times, even if they're enemies. We are to love our enemies. We're to do good to those who spitefully use us and persecute us. For the Lord's name's sake, we're supposed to heap coals upon their head. We're supposed to do good to them. They didn't learn that lesson. The kings of Israel disliked Judah, and the kings of Judah disliked Israel. And they made it very, very clear. All that was Israel, the northern kingdom, all that they had was kind of a, almost a cheap imitation of it. But in this moment, they're going, yeah, well, ours is better. Deuteronomy chapter 11 says this, beginning in verse 29. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you are entering in to take possession of it, you shall set a blessing on Mount Gerizim and a curse on Mount Ebal. This is this crazy thing that was done. There's a mountain of cursing and there's a mountain of blessing. And the, in essence, the altar of God was placed between the two mountains. It's like you can have it one way or the other. You can either be blessed of God, you can be cursed of God. And so they're on Mount Gerizim. They were supposed to be blessed. The curses were to come from Mount Ebal. And so God clearly says to them, look, I, I, I don't want you to choose this, but if you must, then that's what you're going to get. And so there's the blessing on Mount Gerizim, which is where they will build the temple. They figure, well, if that's the Mount of Blessing, we'll build the temple up there. But the curses, the things that you shouldn't do, and you can look at it anytime you look at your Bible. Your Bible is an interesting book in this sense. It's a book of contrasts, isn't it? You ever notice how God doesn't just tell you what not to do, he also tells you what to do? If you're going to walk in the Spirit, you know that you don't want to fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so you, you have all these things that are fruit of the Spirit, but you also know what the anti-fruits are. Bitterness. Anger, hatred. If, if you're going to walk in the spirit of the Lord, you know what to do and you know what not to do. Amen? That was the same thing in the Old Testament. So here you have the Mount of Blessings. Here's the thing God wants to do in your life. 
you listen to the Lord, you do what the Lord says, these are the blessings that come from it. But God being exactly who he is today, then as well, says, but here's the other side of the coin. Here's the contrast. Here's the curses. If you do these things, which are not what I want you to do, here's what you can expect. God has always dealt with mankind that way. That's why the Holy Spirit does two things. Convicts of sin, that's the wrong thing, right? And of righteousness, that's the right thing, amen? So even the work of the Holy Spirit in the world does the same thing that God did in the Old Testament. Here's the amount of blessing, do these things, you'll be blessed. Here's the amount of cursing, do these things, you're going to have some problems with God. Here's these contrasts in the book of Galatians, the book of Romans. These are the works, the works of the flesh are evident in these things, the Apostle Paul says. They're not the way you should live. Here's what the fruit of the Spirit. And even Jesus, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will be the convictor, the convincer of sin and of righteousness. The Old Testament taught that principle. That's not a new thing. And so here it is. Deuteronomy declares for us, they are not beyond the Jordan. West of the road, going down to the sun, the land of the Canaanites who live in Arabah over against Gilgal on the other side of the Oak of Moriah. He says, look, stay in your own land. Do what God asks you. Don't follow after these same people. Don't go down into Edom. Stay out of there. It's going to be bad for you. And so they build this temple on the top of Mount Gerizim. What's interesting about that temple is who actually is responsible for building it. And this is a guy that some of you, if you know your Bibles, actually know him. You remember Sanballat, ladies? You studied the book of Nehemiah not long ago, Sanballat the Horonite? Well, Sanballat the Horonite, Horon, Haran, is this little tiny town actually called Hawara that's at the foot of Mount Gerizim. That temple has now been excavated for almost 40 straight years, and they finally found archaeological evidence that, in fact, the temple that was on Mount Gerizim was at least partially either occupied or built by Sanballat the Horonite. Now, what does he do? He's the guy that brings the false accusation against Nehemiah when he comes back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, right? So here's this same tension. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. Why? Well, Sanballat was intermarried, actually uh, intermarried into the family of the high priest of Jerusalem. So here he's in the family, but he's from the northern kingdom, and they don't like each other. So because they don't like each other, even though I'm in the family of the high priest in Jerusalem, I'm going to build my own temple. Because we don't want to have anything to do with you. And so you end up with this tension. Still exists to this day. This jealousy over Judah was always in the minds of the Israelite kings. Well, when are we going to go to war? What's going to happen? The moral of this story is that you can never compromise with the enemy. You can't do it. There is no form of compromise. When you know to do good, it is sent to him who does not do it. When you know what the word says, when you know what God has said, it is sent to us to not do those things. It is also sent to us when we know this is the direction that we should, that we should travel and we travel it, but we ignore what we're supposed to be doing while we're on the journey. In other words, the Lord holds us responsible for what we know. God holds us, held the Jewish people, the Israelites in this case, responsible for what they knew. God had spoken to them. And here's an interesting thing. One of the reasons that 
in the Old Testament, the Lord was so harsh on his own people. One of the reasons they were almost wiped out by the Assyrians, taken captive by the Babylonians, turned into slaves by the Romans, they kept running into all kinds of problems, is God had been good to them. He'd been kind to them. He had shown them incredible favor. He had delivered them from bondage, had given them first the tabernacle and then the temple. They actually knew God. They'd been given the law of Moses. They'd been given the Levitical law. They understood fully and completely what God expected out of somebody that was going to be called by his name. Remember, Israel means governed by God. Amen? So if you were an Israelite, you were known as a person, much like a Christian is today. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to show people Christ. Amen? Christ should be visible in your life. And in a very similar way, the Jewish people were Israelites. They were governed by God, and yet you couldn't tell by the way they acted. They did the same things that everybody in the world did. They weren't called out. They weren't different. There was no distinction. They lived their lives exactly the same as the pagan, heathen people around them. So much so that in the northern kingdom, when we traveled to the ancient city of Dan, which there's a gate there that was from Abraham's time. When you travel to Dan, there's also a place of an altar there underneath an oak tree that was actually where Jeroboam, the northern king, actually established calf worship. He said, well, you know, let's not be uh, too exclusive here. Let's worship Yahweh and let's worship also a cow. My goodness. It's like you come in next week and you know, all of a sudden here in Tavern Chapel, South Bay, you sit down, you pull out your Bibles, and you go, well, now if you could all take out the Quran, I would hope you would, you know, pick up stones, stone me or something. I don't know. But it, it, is, it, it is, you can't blend those two things. Allah is not Yahweh. Yahweh is not Buddha. It's not Confucius. They're not the same. One is light, one is darkness. And so the Jewish people have been instructed, here's what I want from you. Here's the law. Here's the commands. Here's the Levitical law, the dietary rules. There's all these things. Please be like this because this will make you stand out in the world. Well, they didn't want to stand out in the world. They didn't want anybody knowing in essence, well, we, we just kind of want to fit in. Church, as a believer in Christ, you're not supposed to fit into the world. You're supposed to stand out in this world. You're not supposed to fit in. You're supposed to stand out. You're supposed to be different. Now, please, that doesn't also mean you're supposed to be weird, obnoxious, you know, hate-filled or anything else, it means you're supposed to stand out. People should know by the way you live your life that you are with the Lord. There shouldn't be any doubt in their mind. There should be no ambiguity as to whether you're a Christian or not. It should stand out. It should be the first thing that people understand about you. It's like, oh, you're one of those. Yes. Yes, I am. Thank you, Jesus, for his redemptive power over my life. I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. My Savior is the Lord Jesus, and I am out and about loud and proud. That's how Christians are supposed to live. The Jewish people were supposed to represent Yahweh, Lord of hosts. And instead, it's like, well, a little bit of Baal, a little bit of Molech, a little Ashtaroth. You know, after all, they got temple prostitutes. It's all kind of, it's like, you know, we don't want to, you know. This is crazy. This is why when I listen to Christians with conversations like, hey, did you hear what was going on in Desperate Housewives yesterday? How in the world do you know what's going on in Desperate Housewives? Why are you watching The Bachelor? Why is it that you have your Christian wine moms club? Come on. 
Let's get real about our relationship with Jesus. We're supposed to be different, not the same. So when, you're, when your peers at work are talking about those things, you should be going, huh? What? I don't know. You should look dumb as hot rocks about the thing of the world. Right? You should not be staining yourself with that stuff. And several are like, oh, yeah, well, I like Jimmy. You know, it's like, good grief, people. Come on. That was the problem that the ancient Israelites had. That's what got them into trouble. That's what got them these pronouncements of judgment by God. They refused to be separate. They were not salt and light, exactly as Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. We're supposed to be salt, a preservative, and we're supposed to be light, an illumination. We are not supposed to be confused about whether we're light or darkness. We're light. That's why you shall have no other gods before me. Amen? There's no confusion there. There's just one God. We, we need to get that right. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth there in 2 Corinthians, and he says, do not be unequally yoked, He's not just talking about marriage. That's one spot where it's real obvious. He's talking about the whole world system. Don't be equally yoked for what has, in essence, the devil to do with Christ. And the answer is nothing. Amen? It boils down to church. Truth versus lies. It's what it was for the the Hebrew people. The Israelites, they're, they're, they're believing these lies. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know if your church has these, but, you know, we've got temple prostitutes. I don't know if your church has these, but we have, you know, we got a drunken party after every service. I don't know if your church does it, but, you know, we kinda, you know we've got a dispensary in the lobby. You can get your cannabis and you can get Jesus too. That's the world we live in. Don't kid yourself. There are people preaching that kind of garbage today in our world. So don't just think it was Jeroboam. It's churches today. So well, we can just mix it all in. You know, after all, it's just a mass of tissue. It's just an alternate lifestyle. It's actually a committed relationship. Well, you know, pot's kind of the same as alcohol. Like alcohol is somehow good. Alcohol is a poison. It's always a poison. It always destroys your brain cells. There is no amount of it that is good for you. Zero is the amount that is good for your body. And we're like, well, you know, I mean, this week's microbrew. Please, give me a break. This is the problem that the Hebrews had. It's not a good thing. Sitting around doing what the world does is never a good thing. And some people go, man, you're just killing all my fun. Amen, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. If that's what you call fun, then yes, I'm killing off every last bit of it. If you all hate me and you don't end up in a car accident because you're drunk behind the wheel, uh, you can thank me when we get to heaven. Sundays, we're actually going to be studying the book of Hebrews we finish up Luke's gospel, but a little preview, verse 4 of Hebrews 6, for it is impossible for those who once were enlightened 
who have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again under repentance, for since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. I don't ever want to be guilty of re-crucifying Jesus. Ever. Not by the way I live my life. Now, before anybody feels like they're in bondage or anybody feels like they got beat up, look, the answer is simple. Do what he says. Walk in truth. The enemy's the liar. Christ is truth. He's the way and the truth and the life. Amen? We're supposed to walk in truth, church. We should be doing that with everything that's in us. Everything. The answer to Judah and the answer to us is the same. Walk in truth. Do what God says as best as you can. God was gracious and kind. God was good. God was doing good to the the Israelite people, to the Jewish people, to the inhabitants of both Judah and Israel. God was being good to them. But what were they doing to God? They were using that goodness of God as a means to sin. They were taking the blessings that God had given them and they're using them for ungodly purposes. Lord, help us to not be those kind of people. Help us to recognize that everything that we have in our possession is actually only in our stewardship. Your money belongs to God. Your car belongs to God. Your house belongs to God. Your food belongs to God. Your actual life belongs to God. It was purchased by the blood of Christ. It belongs to God. Amen? We're supposed to live that way. We're supposed to live like we're the king's kids. You don't sully yourself and then walk into the courtroom of the king. You don't get covered with muck and go back into the king's quarters and go, here I am. You walk in this world uprightly. You dare to stand when everyone else kneels. You do what it takes so that people know who you are in Christ and you are absolutely a standout. You know, we put so much time and emphasis and effort on exalting people who are great at things. And again, this is not a knock on anyone. Let me tell you who should be exalted. King Jesus. That's who should be exalted in the life of the church. That's why we feed people who have need. That's why we take meals to people who are shut in. That's why we minister to homeless people. That is why we have a food bank. That is why we go into the mission field. That is why we do good to our neighbors. That is why we're going to be working at shot clinics. That is why we do what we do because we are supposed to exalt King Jesus. That's the whole mission of the church. Exalt King Jesus so that people can meet him and know him. The Jewish people didn't quite get that part of it. They were more concerned about what they were going to get out of it. And because of that, God has some very rough things to say to them. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, see it goes to Judah, now back to Israel again, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. Do you get it? God hates injustice. He's always hated injustice. Every kind of injustice. The things that we're struggling with in our world are actually very ancient problems. People have been taking advantage of other people for a very long time, and God has never been okay with it. He hates all injustice. And so as Amos speaks these things, you can almost hear him, you know, thundering these things on a rock someplace. And, you know, one group would be, oh, we'll get them. And then the next group, yeah, get them. Look, there's plenty of room for all of us to take stock in our own lives. Amen? 
When I look at my life, I don't have to worry about what you're doing. I can find enough garbage in my own life to keep me busy for a very long time. Now, praise God, the things that are in my life are not the things before I got saved, but they're little attitudinal things sometimes. They're just things where the Lord's just going, Jeff, you know, you should have thought about that differently. Jeff, you should have responded more kindly in that situation. You, you should have done this. And I'm like, Lord, you're right. I'm sorry. They probably didn't see you and how I said those things. It used to be how I did those things. Now it's what you thought about that. Anybody been busted about what you think about other people? Anybody in here suffer with the wonderful thing of you are a judger of other people? Yeah. Those things matter to God. Why? Because when you harbor those things in your heart, they will eventually come out. And so Jesus says, do not judge, lest you also be judged in the same manner also. Anybody ever live long enough to be judged in the same manner that you judge somebody else? All of a sudden, everybody's looking at you going, you're the problem. Yeah. God's character doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what he says about his people has effectively always been true. We just now get to relate to him by grace. Hallelujah. Man, if I had to relate by the law, I'm going to get lost. Well, am I supposed to, is this a wood offering or is this a grain offering? Is this a dove that I'm supposed to bring? I wouldn't have any idea. I'd be so messed up. There's temples in both places, but there's trouble in both places. You can almost imagine, you know, what's that genius said? There's kind of a fateful formula in all of this. For three transgressions, for four. The eighth time he says that in two chapters. And he just goes on and on and on and on. And why? Because these are problems that are common to people, to mankind. To humanity. They sold the righteous for silver, the poor for a pair of shoes. You know, it's mind-boggling to me is when you think about this, there's lots of applications in our modern world. We, we can't solve some of the inner city problems that we have, but we can build a 7 to $25 billion bullet train that nobody's going to ride on, Right? And I'm actually not opposed to bullet trains. There are some in the world that work well. But when you're trying to put one up the coast of California, any of you ever driven up the coast of California? You see a place to put a bullet train there? Not me either. You, you, you see, there are things that God has always had a problem with. The first one here is injustice. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor. And pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl. This is, this is promiscuity at its highest. To defile my holy name and lie down by every altar on, on cloths taken in pledge. To drink wine of the condemned in the house of their God. It's like, here, here's the formula. I told you not to do these things and that's exactly what you're doing. And yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. You know, it's interesting. When you look at the history of the Jewish people, on one sense, they were farmers turned into fighters. In other words, they kind of came into the land. It's not like they rolled in with tanks, stealth fighters. Israel has the most modern military in the whole Middle East now. But when they first came into the land that was promised to them by God, you know, it was kind of like a scene out of a 50s horror movie. There was pitchforks and torches. It's like they're coming, you know, out. It's like they don't even have swords. They had to get those from the inhabitants of the land. They took those from the Jebusites. And yet God gave them great favor. Victory after victory after victory after victory. And that's us, church. Don't you kid yourself. Every victory in your life is a victory that God himself purposed and did. He's the one that fights your battles. And if he is for you, there is no one or no thing that can be against you. But don't you forget that it is he who fights those battles. 
They forgot that. I destroyed the Amorites, whose height was like the height of the cedars. He was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above the roots, uh, above and its roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Jewish people were not like these miraculous, you know, tacticians of war. When they left Pharaoh, they were a bunch of brickmakers who had nothing. And they got to the Red Sea, and were it not for the Lord opening the sea, that would have been the end of the Jewish people right there. But God delivered them. They'd forgotten that. They're like, well, you know, we're just awesome. Remember this. If you don't remember anything tonight, you're not awesome. Not when you compare yourself to the Lord and what he's doing. You're not awesome. This whole thing of self-esteem, while it's good to have the proper view of oneself as a believer, the awesomeness in you is the Lord. That's who's awesome. He's the one who's mighty. I am just a brickmaker that got delivered from the hand of Pharaoh. That's who we still are. I led you through 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land. Now notice what he said. I drove out the Amorite to possess the land of the Amorites. So they came to the land of the Amorites. Who drove out the Amorites? God. It wasn't them. They weren't mighty. They weren't strong. They were not military-minded. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Nazarites were men who were set apart to God And they did not taste of the fruit of the vine. They didn't touch anything that had to do with alcohol. It was not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord. You gave the Nazarites wine to drink. He said, hey, party! It's like, come on down, man, we're having it. We're going to watch the Super Bowl. Which at that time was, you know, people throwing rocks at each other. And commanded the prophet saying, do not prophesy. In other words, God sent holy men to them and they said, don't be too holy. God sent righteous men to them. Don't be too righteous. You know, kind of lighten up on the Jesus thing, okay? In a vernacular. And could you kind of let go of this whole, you know, let's be holy as he is holy thing? We don't really like that. We much prefer to have a Bud Light rather than the light of the world. What was it? Well, if you look at this list, it's injustice, immorality, idolatry, imbibing, ingratitude, and intolerance. All eyes, you can write them all down. That's what they were about. All things were in direct conflict with what God had told them. Society was devoid of moral restraint. So the church, if you want to look at it that way, God's representative people on the earth at the time, today that's us, that's the church, God's representative people of that time decided we're going to do things the world's way. We don't like this whole holy thing. We're just not going to do that. We kind of like what everybody else is doing. So we're going to do that. And God said, don't. It's not going to go good for you. If you look at the holiness code of prohibitions, they're in Leviticus 18, chapter 20. Within the context of it, it actually begins to talk about all these false gods that they're now worshiping. It's like, don't do that. He said, well, it's not going to be that bad. this sin isn't really going to destroy my life. You know, after all, it's just a little bit of sin. Interesting that in all of that, at least as far as what we know, the most common one were sexual sins of a whole bunch of different flavors, including the Canaanite fertility cult, 
which had same sex, very gross, extremely debauched rituals involved in it. And we're going, well, you know, I think God's changed his mind. No, actually, he hasn't. Because the same prohibitions are in the New Testament. Book of Romans begins that march. And we don't need to go there tonight. You can read Romans 1 and look for yourself. But they were, they were doing exactly what is mentioned here. A boy and his father going to the same prostitute. Anybody else a little bit stunned at what's going on in our world right now? Like the world of politics? Guys that one week, we're the moral majority. The next week, well, we're the immoral majority. God has the same standard. He hasn't changed. It still ruins people's lives. It still destroys people. It destroys marriages and families. It destroys children. My mind personally was shaped by those sins of my parents. And I'm sure many of you in this room can identify with exactly what I just said. My life was marked by a living hell because of the sins of my own parents. So it's not okay. It's never been okay. And that's not to put condemnation on anybody. Praise God, the grace of God is able to forgive us from all of our sin. Amen? Hallelujah? He's that good. And he sets us free from that thing. But don't go back to it. Don't dismiss it. Don't tell your kids it's okay. Don't look at it and go, well, you know, it's just the way the world is today. Why? Because in that code it says, I will cut off from the midst of their people both him and all who follow after him in spiritual prostitution. God is serious about who he is. And he wants us to be serious about who we are because we represent him. And don't be bummed by this, church. Be challenged by it. Be encouraged by it. Say, Lord, I want to live like you want me to live like I've never lived before because the world has never needed it more. The world's never needed you to shine for Jesus more than it needs you right now. Because very few people are actually concerned with shining for the Lord Jesus. Just like these Israelites were not concerned. And before anyone gets too far off base, yes, the Old Testament declared that the sin of homosexuality was an abomination. But let's be honest here. Proverbs 6. Six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. You see, we're quick to call homosexuality an abomination, but what about pride? Oops. A lying tongue. Oh, no, it does not. Yes, it does. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift to run to evil. A false witness that speaks lies. You get that one twice. And the final one. Hear it. One who sows discord amongst the brethren. Those are all things that God calls an abomination. So for the church, what's our call? What's our challenge? Our challenge is first to be the church, be saved, be a light, and then to live the way God wants us to live. That's why it's so important that we don't get off the mark on what is going on here. God is saying, look, you guys aren't living what I ask you to live. That's the reason these things are coming. The reason America is having problems right now is because I believe that a vast majority of Christians are not living as Christians. I know that sounds judgmental, 
But all you got to do is look around at the country and go, "Mm, that's not from the Lord. That's not what God would want us to do. The vast majority of the deepest problems that we have are all solved by just simply Christians being Christian. If for sins like these, God had driven out the inhabitants of the land, the chosen people, Israel, don't you think he's going to have something to say about Christians who get to walk in grace? I don't know about you. I haven't been to a temple to do a sacrifice. As many times as I've been to Jerusalem, I've never gone and slaughtered an animal. I haven't had to go and make an offering. The offering's supposed to be me. Give your life a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable unto the Lord. Your whole body, your mind. And here they're saying, look, ah, we need to just be quiet. You know? Don't prophesy. Don't tell us not to drink. Don't do any of that stuff. And he pronounces a fearful future on them. Good news is it doesn't end that way because this is not the end of the story. But behold, I'm weighted down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. And therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor the mighty deliver himself. Shall not stand who handles a bow. The swift of foot shall not escape nor he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous of men of might shall flee naked in that day. And so the Lord speaks into our time. Through the prophet Amos, he finally says, look, it's going to be like this all the way to the end. So what's the moral of the story? When you know to do good, do good. When you know what God requires, that's our marching orders. When God says flee from sin, you're supposed to flee from sin. You can have a choice. What was the choice for them? The Mount of Blessings or the Mount of Cursing? The good things the Lord wants to give you or the things that he will unfortunately be left to give you if you choose not to have the good things. The choice has always been ours. It was theirs, it's ours. The Bible encourages us to choose life. Let's choose that. Let's choose life, church. Amos saw the future. And the future that he sees here in verse 16 is a future that is still future to us tonight. In that day. That means we still have time. That means we still have grace That means we still have forgiveness. That means we still have the glorious love of God poured out all over us. But God blesses obedience. God blesses living that marches forward when the world is trying to push us backwards. Let's live that way. Let's honor the Lord with all that we are. Every moment of every day, let's make sure that people know who we stand for. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Let's stand. We'll close in prayer. After service, if you need prayer, the prayer team is in the prayer room. They would love to pray with you about anything that's on your heart or your mind. Uh, Keep praying. We are supposed to get some guidance as we're going into, I believe, the yellow tier Probably next Wednesday, that announcement will come out, supposedly taking effect on uh, next Thursday, so a week from tonight, which is going to loosen some additional restraints on us and kind of set us free in some new ways. That's the final tier, by the way, and the news still is out of, out of Sacramento that about June 15th or so, uh, they're going to announce the end of the tiered system, which could uh, really make some nice things happen for us here in, in Los Angeles County, so keep praying for that. Amen. Father, we thank you. We don't deserve good, Lord, but you have been good to us, and we are so grateful for that goodness. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone tonight
Uh, maybe they've been challenged by this message. Maybe there's something going on in their lives. They just haven't gotten victory over it. Lord, would you please, in Jesus' name, uh, touch them with that power of grace, Lord, that marvelous mercy that flows from your heart, that they would turn and recognize that in the hearing of all of this, there's still time to not only turn from it, but to prosper on the other side of it. And so, Lord, make us prosperous for your kingdom. Uh, help us to love you with a whole heart and walk with you with all that we have. Lord, set us free from things that bind and set us uh, to task doing the things that are of your kingdom. We love you. We thank you for the example uh, of the Jewish people, the Israelites, those in Judah, the ancient people who entered the land, Lord, by your grace. Uh, Lord, help us to enter in and stay there by your grace. We ask all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.